Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned in to Future City, our monthly conversation that changes the conversation about Baltimore from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, maybe there are some times when your apartment or your house feels too small, not enough space for you or for your stuff or for your kids. But I bet you probably live in an environment over 180 square feet. Do you feel claustrophobic just thinking about having your bed, your kitchen, your living room, your bathroom, all in a space smaller than some people's closets? Well, you're not alone. But there are also plenty of people out there starting to change their expectations about space. They're embracing a movement known as the tiny house movement. These homes are usually between 180 and 300 square feet. They're usually portable and are completely off-grid. Whether you're downsizing during retirement or looking to live a wonderlust lifestyle, house in tow, these homes have a lot of appeal for a wide range of people. But maybe more surprisingly, they're also drawing attention from social innovators, people who see tiny homes as a potential solution to entrenched social problems like homelessness. So what's this lifestyle all about? And these tiny homes, are they just a gimmick or are they actually a viable option for housing? That's our topic for today's show. And to start us off, we're very excited to be joined by two of the three hosts of the Tiny House podcast, Michelle Boyle and Perry Gruber. And they are all entrepreneurs who are based out of Portland, Oregon, with a shared passion for the tiny house movement. Michelle and Perry, thank you both for joining us on this episode. Happy to be here. Thank you. So before we go too deep into this, let's start with definitions, uh, because I know that there are plenty for when people talk about tiny houses and the tiny house movement. Uh, can you first understand, help people understand what is a tiny house? So I think, first of all, it's, it's important to understand more so what a tiny house isn't. There is a lot of confusion and sort of, shall we say, comparison. So... Um, very specifically, the tiny houses are divided into two different categories. There are, of course, tiny houses on foundations and tiny houses on wheels. Um, the tiny houses on foundations, I guess you would technically, in order to be considered a tiny house, if they're under 400 square feet, that was a definition that was sort of assigned by Wikipedia pretty recently. And tiny houses on wheels um, are also, of course, under 400 square feet but that's more so because the Department of Transportation regulations associated with what you can move down the highway um, under what conditions. And, and Michelle, this is personal for you because, I mean, you live in a tiny house, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm standing right now in the kitchen of my 204-square-foot tiny house. Yes. <laughs> And so you're, you say you're standing right now in your kitchen, okay? So your kitchen is near what? What's, what's the configuration of the home? So my house is eight and a half feet wide by 24 feet long. The front door is actually almost in the middle on the long side. So as you enter on the right-hand side, almost a third of the house on the main floor is taken up by the kitchen, which is actually over the tongue of the trailer. The center portion of the tiny house is the living room. So that's where I have my entertainment center and a couple of lounge chairs. And then the back third is actually the bathroom and laundry room and closet and so forth. I do have two lofts. 
the my bedroom loft is over the bathroom, which is again in the back portion. And then my guest loft is over the kitchen, which is on the front. Um, I think probably one of the biggest, um, shall we say, factors in the architecture or how the house feels is I actually have 11 windows. So it's a very, uh, sometimes it almost feels a bit like a fishbowl when all the windows are <laughs> well, the blinds are open. And so you, so your home can comfortably, comfortably sleep two, three? Um, probably three. I get, the guest loft is actually large enough for a double-sized bed, and the queen loft is large enough for a queen-sized bed. So, yeah, three or four people pretty comfortably. Um, socially, I've had up to 10 people in my house for wine parties, so hmm. it gets cozy, but it's pretty fun. <laughs> and, and, Perry, the, the podcast website says that you're an aspiring tiny houser, right? Yeah, well, I, I currently am standing in a space that I built that is a tiny of tiny house dimensions that I use as a man cave and a workspace because my wife runs a preschool out of our house. And so there's no room in the house for me to have a space to my own or a quiet space for me to work. So um, I'm currently taking this call from my workspace, which is about seven and a half feet wide and about uh, 18 feet long. So you guys talked about the, the the podcast. How many episodes have you now have you now done? How many episodes are we at, Michelle? Are we at a, we're over 120? Is that right? Yeah, I think we're about to record 123 or 124. And it's amazing. I mean, how popular the podcast has become, and 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 both. It's because I think you guys are are really uh, impressive and and engaging personalities, and I think it also has a lot to do with the popularity of this movement. Um, so when you think about the incredible range of topics that you all cover in the podcast, uh, has there been a particular highlight for, for, for either of you about, you know, something that you, you learned or something that you thought was really interesting to share for people about this movement? The, the most interesting thing that I find about the, the, the quote unquote topics we cover are actually the people we talk with hmm. and the stories that they share, the commonality, what surprises me is the commonality the commonality of story that they all seem to have which is something has happened in their lives that has caused an epiphany a kind of eye-opening experience that forces them out of the mainstream way of looking at living on earth and as a result of that they become um, more spiritual or at least more grounded or connected to nature and want to have that kind of experience more than the accumulation of, uh, of goods or uh, a mortgage or something like that. And so all of the people that we have talked to are, in my opinion, non-traditional thinkers as a result of this, this epiphany experience that they've had at some point in their lives. Sometimes it's way, really early on, like in childhood. Other times it's somewhere in the middle of their lives. And, and other times it's at, toward the, uh, the retirement age. It's and it's really interesting because you're you're right. The people that you have and the people that you feature, they all get there for different reasons. They're all they're all uh, 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 taken by this for different reasons, all of different you know uh, age ranges. Michelle, can can you also tell us a bit about just how diverse? The lifestyle is because oftentimes when people think about the tiny house movement, you know, it, it eventually, you know, an, an immediate perception of who we're talking about pops into people's minds. Uh, how diverse is this movement? I think actually the diversity in the tiny house movement itself is really uh, the reason why, right? It's because it's so popular. So 
first and foremost, I guess, is what you would consider the semi-obvious uh, sort of market or demographic, and that is the you know the people that are just graduating from college. They might have a lot of college debt. They may yeah. not actually know where they're going to work long term. So they love the affordability. They love the flexibility. They love the you know the ability to build their own house and and sort of carry their future with them. On the other end of the spectrum is the baby boomers or the retirees. Um, I'm not quite a retiree, but I was definitely motivated to build my tiny house when I'm looking forward to retirement. This is the only option that I could come up with that really presented a great quality of life for me in my situation. So first and foremost, we kind of have this sort of sandwich you know, industry. Um, besides that, however, the popularity of the tiny house movement has really spread to uh, again, a number of different genres, a number of different, um, shall we say, demographics and areas of the country. We're seeing tiny houses on wheels and backyards, of course, in the middle of downtown Portland. We're also seeing a lot of people that are considering them for temporary housing, um, also for housing of the homeless or disadvantaged. Um, people of all walks of life, people of all races are embracing the tiny houses, and it's really, really exciting to see the vulnerability and the authenticity of the movement and what it brings out in people. When you think about the future of Portland and the future of your of your of your environments, uh, how do you see this movement continuing to grow? And what, if anything, do you think are some of the main core impediments to its growth? So, first of all, every you know when we um, I travel to a lot of major events and and every event that I that I go to. It's very interesting. They're getting bigger and bigger uh, unexpectedly. So uh, even it's even a surprise to those of us in the movement how big and how popular it's getting. So on a grand scale, I see the tiny house movement continuing to grow, continuing to gain popularity. Um, and um, I think the, the one major uh, stopping point, I guess you would call it, um, in all of this really has to do with the legality. Everybody has sort of a, every jurisdiction has a different idea about how they want to make them legal. And so until we really decide for ourselves from one municipality to another, from one city to another, from one state to another, until we get those decisions really worked out, um, the tiny house movement will be somewhat stymied. Um, but once that happens in each area, the tiny house movement is it's sort of like a dam it's going to there's 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 this demand that's built up behind the issue of legality and once that gets resolved it's just in my personal opinion it will get way bigger than any of us can even imagine i agree with everything michelle just said we're going to see a, a swelling of interest in this once it becomes legal and I think especially as we're having conversations about population growth and particularly cities that know that their population is growing uh, significantly, this is an inevitable part of, of that conversation. You're listening to Future City, and this is Wes Moore. And uh, I'm incredibly excited and thankful that we've had Michelle Boyle and Perry Gruber, uh, who are both entrepreneurs based out of Portland and also run the podcast called the Tiny House Podcast, joining us today. Michelle and Perry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Coming up. People in Seattle, Washington are enthusiastically signing up to have tiny homes built in their backyards to house homeless people. Yes in My Backyard has become their rallying cry, but 
housing a stranger in your yard is complicated to say the least. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. So today we're talking about inventive housing and mainly tiny housing. Tiny houses aren't just cute or interesting. They're indicative of a lifestyle movement that insists less is more. And they also may offer a practical solution to entrenched social problems like homelessness. Tiny houses are relatively cheap to construct and are entirely off-grid, self-sustainable in other words. They're also portable. You can literally put them anywhere. Sarah Vander Zanden is the managing director of Facing Homelessness, the umbrella organization for The Block Project. And also joining us is Rex Holbein, a Seattle architect who's putting this theory into practice of small homes as they relate to social change. He founded The Block Project, a community-minded organization dedicated to ending homelessness by placing a tiny house in the backyard of one single-family lot on every residential zone block in Seattle. Rex and Sarah, it is great having you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Sarah, maybe we'll start with you. You know, you're coming to The Block Project from a nonprofit philanthropic background. And I think a lot of people who will look at a project like this will say, great in theory, but not actually in practice. How, what would you say to those people? Is this a sustainable model? We believe that the Block Project is the sustainable model. It's the model, although the Block Project is not the right solution for every person who's sleeping outside, it does increase our capacity to accept other solutions when all of us in Seattle have a neighbor who has formerly been homeless, and we start to think of those who are living outside as our neighbors, we become more likely to vote yes on the housing levy and to be supportive of the shelter that's coming into our zip code. And Rex, I mean, we talk about all of us have a neighbor. Uh, This actually started from a very personal experience with you where you actually became close with the homeless person. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about how that changed your career path, this relationship? Sure. I mean, as an architect, I I had uh, thoughts and feelings about how could design make a difference. But really, first and foremost, as a human being, just like all of us, I was faced with the fact that um, the people that I was meeting were not actually measuring up to the negative stereotype that we all hold in some manner. Um, The people I was meeting were interesting and bright, and and their stories about why they became homeless um, were real. And, And by just listening to those stories, it changed my view about who the homeless are and how we should be relating to the homeless. See, I, I love that. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because uh, when people are talking about this idea of the, town, the tiny house and the tiny house movement, um, that they're saying, oh, yes, this is a solution to homelessness. And the answer is this is not a, uh, a but or an or. It's a yes and conversation that uh, that you know these homes are, are 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 cheap monetarily, but but can you give us an idea about how you see this as not only something to solve for a homelessness problem, but something to really think about how do we rethink the word community? You know, we think that when we put someone inside, you know, game done, uh, solution uh, arrived at, and that's not true actually. When people often when they move inside after being homeless they're being taken out of a community that is a street community. Now, it may be a dysfunctional community, but it's still a community. So you move somebody inside, and if you have not reconnected them to community, they actually start to go downhill. They self-harm. Uh, often people commit suicide. 
because they are alone. We all know this, that maybe one of the most important things for each and every one of us is to feel that we belong. So, so Sarah, is the idea behind the, the project and the tiny house, uh, you know, the tiny house initiative, is it for permanent residents for a homeless person or is it more of a form of transitional housing that you think that this more better applies to? So the block homes are considered permanent housing, um, and they're they're considered that way just by nature of the fact that we don't impose an end date, a move-out date on the resident when they move in. Um, so we anticipate that this journey will look different for each person. Some people will move in, and um, they might just live in a block home for eight months or a year or two years while they're getting back on their feet, and then they're, you know, they're in this position where they have gotten a job and can pay market rate rent in Seattle. Um, other people, like our first resident, Bobby, is 75, and he's he will live the rest of his days in his block home, and that's exactly where he wants to be, and that's where his host family wants him to be, too. So we do imagine this as, as different for each person, but at the end of the day, it's, it is permanent housing. And the structures, too, Rex can speak to the, the nature of the structures, but these little structures are more impressive than the structure I live in, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> they're, they're airtight, made with top-quality materials. They're completely built to be off-grid and also self-sustained. So they include a bathroom and a little kitchenette and a sleeping area and a cozy front porch. Um, this is a place where people will want to be. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, when whenever you look at these new initiatives, there's always that bigger question of supply versus demand, right? And, and one question that, that people might have about tiny homes is, well, is there, de- is there demand? Do people really want this? But I think what you all are seeing is the answer overwhelmingly is yes, the demand is strong for this. We see a strong demand on both sides. So um, certainly there's no shortage of residents who have people living outside who are interested in living in a block home. We have 8,522 people in Seattle alone who are um, who are homeless. So the demand is high. Um, and to build a home, for someone to have a home that is dignified in the way a block home is makes it a very attractive option for people. Um, and then what people have been surprised to hear is that the demand is high on the homeowner side too, on the host end. We have over 50 families in Seattle who have already come forward to host a block home literally in their own backyard, and that's before we've even asked. Um, And so, and we anticipate, and that honestly didn't surprise us. We have been running the Facebook page for the past seven years, and every time we've asked the community to come forward and to help in some way, they come rushing forth with compassion and resources, and the same has been true of the Block Project. And so, Rex, if you reach your goal of one tiny house on every residential block in Seattle, how many homes would you need to build? And, and would that alone solve the problem of homelessness in Seattle that, uh, that Sarah just laid out? Yeah, so there are more than enough blocks to address the issue of homelessness. And, and we also believe that once we start putting them uh, on residential blocks, block after block, there's nothing that, that uh, prevents more than one block. Per, uh, one, more than one block home per block. Really, the, one of the largest issues about solving the homelessness housing part of the issue, land, goes away with the block project. And it's interesting because you, your, your, your point is incredibly well taken, Rex, where 
It's about how exactly do we change a narrative behind what we're talking about? Because there is a traditionally understood face of homelessness, which actually does not jive with the reality of homelessness. Um, and, and when you're watching the growth of homelessness, you know, oftentimes what you're also watching is the growth of people who are, you know, the working poor. Uh, people who are working, it's, it's, it's single moms and single dads. It's people who are, uh, have just hit one bad patch in their life or watch rent rolls continue to rise and costs continue to rise while their incomes are staying flat. And so really what this is helping to do is change a narrative around homelessness as well by asking people to remember the humanity behind this issue and the work that then needs to be done in order to properly address it. Absolutely. Yeah, and we, uh, the Black Project has been compared by one of our close friends who's uh, friends with the founder of Airbnb that um, this model is much like Airbnb uh, in the way that it shifts the paradigm and changes the conversation. 20 years ago, we would never have let someone, some stranger from Australia come and sleep in our basement while we're home. Like that. Especially those Australians. <laughs> that would seem terrifying. And now I just heard a statistic that there are 6,000 Airbnb units in, uh, in Seattle alone. And that seems completely normal. We have elderly people who host Airbnbs in their, in their basements and mother-in-law units. And we think the Black Project will change the conversation in a similar way. Right now, to a lot of people, the idea of using our backyards as platforms for social justice seems far-fetched. And in 20 years, we think it will be the new norm. Well, no, that's right. And, but, and, I, and I think it's important also to understand and acknowledge, uh, you know, what this means in terms, of, in terms of wealth building and not even just for the people in the tiny homes, but what it means for the people whose homes you're going to put something else in your backyard. You know, what have you guys found and, and what has been seen about what this does to value? of homes. So a person is living in a home, a person's, you know, gaining equity in their home and they say, okay, I want to put a tiny home in my backyard. Uh, does that increase their value? Uh, because they now have an additional structure in the back. Does that decrease their value because they now have a comp that is very close to their home that is significantly lower in value than their home? What exactly does that do? And how exactly has that changed the conversation about whether or not people are interested in having this? Um, so that's, those are questions that we're looking forward to answering over time. We, one of the metrics that we want to use to gauge the success of the Black Project is the desirability of neighborhoods. So we anticipate that neighborhoods will become more desirable when they have a block home and that we'll be able to, um, with data, demonstrate that neighborhoods are more connected. And, um, and so we're excited to see the impact of that. The thing right now that we're finding with the first block home, Kim and Dan, the host, and Bobby, the resident, is how their quality of life has increased so dramatically. Kim and Dan are exceptionally compassionate. They're some of the best people I know. They're also your average Seattleite. They own a humble home. They're introverts. They have nine-to-five jobs. They love their cats. Um, and they feeling carrying daily such guilt with them as they saw people suffering and then they went home to their comfortable bungalow and 
to see the way that their lives have improved in relationship with Bobby and how enriching it is for them to truly be a part of the solution and not just bystanders to this crisis is it has been the most moving part of this project for me. While much more you're listening to Future City, we've been having an absolutely fascinating conversation with uh, Sarah Vanderzanden, who is the Managing Director of Facing Homelessness, and Rex Holbein, who is the founder of The Block Project, about tiny houses and how we can use those to help solve homelessness. Both of you, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It looks like there's a great deal of interest in tiny houses here on the East Coast as well. A few weeks ago, the Mid-Atlantic Tiny House Expo in Frederick, Maryland completely sold out. Greg Cantori, local consultant and nonprofit leader, believes these innovative houses are the solution to many of Baltimore's social issues. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. On today's episode, we've been looking at how cities like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington are embracing alternative housing, mainly tiny housing, as an alternative lifestyle, and even as a solution to serious social issues. And now, we're going to turn our attention back home to Baltimore. Anyone who lives in Baltimore or has even driven through knows the city has a serious housing crisis. Boarded up townhouses, homeless on the street. We have some serious problems here that need to be addressed and need to be fixed. Greg Cantori, a pro bono tiny home consultant for the Baltimore nonprofit Civic Works, thinks tiny homes may be the answer. And he joins me here in studio. Greg, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. So first of all, a tiny home consultant, that's a pretty unique job. Can you talk a bit about how you got to that and what exactly it means to be working in the tiny home movement? It started way back in the early 90s when I was executive director of Light Street Housing, and our mantra back then was homelessness to home ownership. We actually were working with individuals coming out of the South Baltimore Station and a number of other uh, transitional uh, shelters and housing groups and working with them on establishing credit, getting uh, their jobs back or new jobs with a downtown partnership, actually, and, and continuing their counseling and addiction and mental health treatment. And by doing all of that, we were able to help them establish credit and eventually actually purchase the houses in South Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And so that was very exciting, but the difficulty was that we had to establish all kinds of funding streams to make that happen, state, local, federal funding streams, as well as foundations. It was a complicated, hard, long work to make it work. And I knew there had to be a better way. And so over the years, I realized uh, that the tiny homes were an opportunity to make this this a real reality. And uh, we did that by uh, myself actually purchasing with my wife a tiny home about six years ago. And I use it as a backyard office and a guest home. And over those years, realized that this is actually a very exciting solution uh, because it's small. It has everything you need, shower, bathroom, stove, two places to sleep nice place to study, even doing your laundry, all of that in one little tiny house of about 200 square feet. So so, so you, you completely practice what you preach. Exactly. In fact, we currently live on our sailboat in Annapolis right now, which is a tiny house on the water, basically. How did you first even hear so, about these, this phenomenon and this idea? Well, going back to uh, the early 90s, as I mentioned, is that I saw the FEMA trailer situation uh, come into being and realized that folks were living in trailers like that. And of course, over the years, traveling around the country, 
over 25 million people live in mobile homes. And they're a form of tiny home. They're, they're usually a little bit larger, about 400 to 800 square feet. And one, I, I saw that as an affordable housing solution in one aspect, but the, the flip side was the quality of those homes was very, very low. And um, the low, bad insulation, poor construction, and on and on. And frankly, the aesthetics were not there. So when the tiny home idea started to, to, to form it back in the early 2000s, I saw that as an opportunity to say we could we can continue that affordable smaller home idea with a higher quality house. So you know, but it's interesting, right? Because so, you're talking about how it it initially begins on a platform of survivability. That's right. Right? And it goes from survivability to now choice. Like people are basically saying we don't need mm-hmm. X amount of space. We don't right. need all that. We right. actually were fine with just being able to survive and thrive with Right. A smaller space. I mean, to the point that we now had a Mid-Atlantic, you know, tiny home expo. Right. It sold out. <laughs> sold out expo. I mean, can you talk about what that was It was, was amazing. Like? I, I actually did not get a chance to go there. I actually had four tickets, and I gave the four tickets away to individuals who'd volunteered at Civic Works. Those are hot tickets, man. They were hot. <laughs> and, uh, and and I was thrilled to be able to give it to them because I've already seen tiny homes. I didn't need to be there. But um, the, the not only was it sold out, individuals who came to the expo um, hoping to get tickets on spot were turned away. Mm. Over 4,000 people on Saturday. I don't even know how many on Sunday. The demand is huge. The demand is real. And and if any elected official says, well, I'm not, I don't see it, we can now point to it, that there's a huge amount of interest and demand on this. And it's no longer a fad. This is a reality. But who? But so who's showing up to this? I mean, is it yeah. is it the HGTV crowd? Is it that's the, a, is the voyeurs? I mean, like, who's showing up to the expo? So the that's a, that's a great question because it's all over the spectrum there. And this is what's interesting is the millennials already are looking at like car ownership as a negative. They're no longer desiring the cars as much as as younger people did in the past. Yeah. Same thing with space and stuff. They don't need as much space. They don't want as much space, and they don't want or need as much things. Um, they they are they are a sharing economy. They want to rent. They want to basically experience life and not have to own things that actually end up owning you. That's one of the things we learn about this. You know, I always say, uh, you know, you don't own a business. A business owns you. Yeah. You don't own, you know, stuff. It owns you because you have to maintain it. You have to get insurance for it. You have to take care of it. You have to store it. And, and they're seeing all this. So at the very young um, side of the equation, we're seeing a huge amount of interest. And then towards my end of the, the, the equation, the people in their 50s and 60s um, who are looking at retirement, this is a real viable option. And for some of them, frankly, it's the only real viable option because um, they're realizing, as you know, there's a retirement crisis as well. And the fact that folks have not saved up enough money, that Social Security may provide maybe 1000 to $2,000 a month. And if you're trying to live off of twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars a year, small, tiny homes become a real viable option. And it becomes an interesting option for a city like you know, like Baltimore. And Baltimore is not alone in this, mm-hmm. um, where there's almost a barbell of of mm-hmm. of, of ages that right. you're having an attraction, right? So you're attracting the millennials. Mm-hmm. Where you're absolutely right. I mean, last year was the lowest driver registration uh, uh, collection period in the history of driver registrations, which is basically showing millennials are just not interested in driving as much, right? That's right. So so you're watching that where you're having this influx of millennials, Mm -hmm. and then you're having an influx of seniors. So you have this barbell that exists when it comes to a population, right? right? Um, Another city that's like that is Detroit. Mm -hmm. 
Can you talk about your last visit to Detroit a little bit? So very, we were very lucky. A group of us um, who were interested in the tiny house issue in Baltimore were, um, were able to go up to Detroit, and we visited Cass Community Services, which has had a long, long history providing uh, soup kitchens and other social services for uh, folks that were homeless or virtually homeless, um, food insecure, and so on. And um, they have realized that housing is a critical need in the neighborhood that they're in, even though there's a tremendous number of uh, vacant lots now that are there. And um, the tiny homes was their solution. So they have a, it's called a cast tiny home community, have built uh, at this point, I think it's 12 tiny homes with with a goal of 26 on a uh, one block area. And the... We learned a lot from this. One of the was one of the uh, the big learnings on here was that the cost was only about fifty thousand dollars per house because they got pro bono um, work done by construction individuals as well as volunteers to keep the cost down per house. And they have what they call a rent and own philosophy based on a seven year time frame. And seven is the magic number, obviously, for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the seven years, um, where a lot of times you can forgive debt, seven seven uh, days, seven years, uh, where you can um, look at changing a life. And so what they do is they do it at $1 per square foot, which averages about $300 a month on that, which covers the basics of utilities and um, taxes, insurance. And at the end of seven years, the individuals who are living in those homes get the house. Mm. That's it. No mortgage. They're, they're done. All they have to do is maintain that $300 a month payment on that. So oh. they've created a, a, an avenue towards asset uh, creation that's, that's really remarkable. Mm. And, and they have pride of ownership. They have pride of community. And they're engaged in the community. They, they're required to do a um, certain number of things during that rental period, such as uh, meet with each other, create a community association, and um, and do some volunteer work. Now it seems like that's that's a pilot that they're doing right now. Exactly right. It is a pilot, and and these are foundation-based tiny homes, and that's something that, to recognize too is that the the tiny home piece is actually very very diverse. There's tiny homes on wheels, which is what we see on HGTV, mm-hmm. and then there's tiny homes on foundations. And tiny homes are generally 400 square feet or less. That's the that's the general definition on that. So the tiny homes on, uh, on foundations are, are frankly more acceptable to the bureaucracies of, of cities because that's what they're used to. Uh, the tiny homes on wheels are, are somewhat threatening, um, but they also offer additional opportunities for very, very low income. And by the way, when we talk about low income, CAS is working with $7,000 to $14,000 a year incomes hmm. on this. So you're talking about someone who's learning less than if they are working, less than $7 an hour. These are the working poor. The working poor, or frankly, the ones who might even be on disability yeah. um, for, for various reasons, or may only be able to work part-time. So that, that be able to do a homelessness to home ownership aspect at yeah. that income level is extraordinary. So that's what really, really impacted me, and I think the group that was visiting is that, wow, if they can do that, why can't we do that here in Baltimore? So what if, if that's the vision for Baltimore, uh, what then become the next steps that we have to do in order to make that vision a reality? 
we're, we're in the process now. And the good news is, is that we're getting a lot of positive reactions uh, from the mayor directly. We've met with her, as well as uh, department heads uh, throughout the city have been very, very positive about making a pilot project here in both East and West Baltimore to get go ahead and get this started. Based on the same idea that these would be foundation-based tiny homes um, in a village format. And that's the other thing about diversity is that we can do this as a village format where you're doing it on a block uh, with a number of homes. One of the other unique things, I'm, I'm using the word diversity a lot because the CAS Community Services believes in the, in the uniqueness of each individual and therefore each home is unique. None of those homes look alike mm. um, and that helps with the diversity um, vision on there. And I, and I really believe in that in so many ways. We, we're diverse in our incomes, diverse in our backgrounds, our cultural uh, backgrounds, and we're so diverse in so many ways we ought to reflect that in the homes. And lastly, also the quality of the homes was very high. So the other thing is, is that the home should reflect the quality of the individual living there. And, and I believe very strongly that all of us have a high quality life and, and we need to respect that with a high quality home. I agree. So, is there something, is there a uniqueness about Baltimore, our histories, our policies, our culture, our politics? Is there something unique about Baltimore that we have to remember? Because, you know, one thing, you know, one thing that we're always cautious on, you know, both on this show and even just when it comes to policy is this idea of, of, uh, of uh, you know, basically... It's not simply it's not simply enough to say, well, this works in Birmingham. Let's just bring it to Baltimore. Or it's right. not, you know, that the, the chances of organ rejection, right. if the pieces are not in place, are real and significant. What are the unique things about Baltimore that we have to keep in mind as we're ex- importing this this tiny home movement? Well, one of the things that uh, from your previous month's show on on asset creation and and, and, and racial inequity. Um, is the legacy, unfortunately, that Baltimore was one of the very first cities to pass a, a zoning code that was strictly discriminatory. And we are also the, we're the leaders in redlining and blockbusting. So both those, uh, all three of those situations um, may remain in place in many ways, uh, in much more subtle ways, but they're still there. So that legacy pull, we, we, we need to overcome that. Um, so that's a unique challenge to Baltimore that uh, other cities haven't had as much. And when we think about the configuration of families mm-hmm. uh, and the configuration of the tiny homes, you know, certain people in certain situations, this is going to sound great. Certain people in situations going to say that sounds that's crazy. Absolutely right. Just like in, in life, you know, you go ahead and you buy an SUV versus a, uh, a Toyota, you know, a, a Prius. It's yeah. the exact same. So each home can be situ- set up in a way that's, that will fit that unique individual's life. And frankly, tiny homes are not for everyone. But here's, here's what I'm excited about is that if we can get singles and couples in particular or single parents perhaps um, who, who would love to live in a tiny home, a tiny home, we take the pressure off some of the other housing stock for the larger families, per- perhaps, or people uh, who may have disabilities and aid- may need ADA um, housing, for instance. We take the pressure off of that so that we have more opportunities for them. The, the other aspect is the cost. You know, we're looking at, realistically, probably seventy-five dollars to $85,000 for an average tiny home on a foundation in Baltimore. Hmm. 
which is about one half to one third of an affordable housing unit cost. The average affordable housing unit in Baltimore now is over $190,000. Repeat that again. $190,000 for an affordable housing unit in Baltimore. It is virtually impossible to do affordable housing, anything cheaper than that now in the city. In Washington, it's much worse. It's close to $300,000 per unit. Hmm. And we're talking about something less than 100000 here. So one of the things is look at things like social impact bonds, where if we can show that we are saving money on the front end of hard cost construction and mortgages and all of that, um, we could basically double the number of affordable housing units because we could save so much more by using tiny homes. Yes. That's, that's one aspect. There's, now, going back to the wheels, <laughs> the wheels are what really excite me and is probably the, the most difficult uh, hurdle to overcome. The wheels op- offer opportunities for folks to live, truly live near where they work. Yeah. So if we had areas around the city that allowed tiny homes and wheels, including our backyards, so you have a, a, a home and you have a backyard and you can put an accessory dwelling unit back there, why not have a tiny home on wheel hosted there? So you, ha- you get income from that. You get to meet this wonderful new homeowner who has a tiny home on wheels on there. They get to live in an affordable way and perhaps an unaffordable neighborhood on that, and they get to walk or bicycle to work. And when their jobs change, which happens a lot these days, you can go ahead and hook it up and move on out to the new location. So tiny homes are amazing because you can get a low mortgage, low utility costs. Um, and cash, for instance, are less than $50 a month, total utility costs on that. And low transportation or even no transportation costs if you can walk to work. So if you can do all of that, you've got the most extraordinarily affordable housing imaginable. I, I can't see this doing any better than that. And it's a high quality of life. That's the other thing. Is it just because it's affordable doesn't mean the quality of life isn't there. That's right. It's there. It, it's also something that I think really reinforces the feeling of community as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we, we spoke about we spoke about this even on on um, you know past episodes dealing with transportation, where mm-hmm. part of the beauty of really well-constructed and well-thought-out transportation plans is that it reinforces a sense of community. Right. How you think about real estate and housing mm-hmm. does the exact same thing. That's right. That's right. So much. There's a workforce component to this that really needs to be mentioned, too, is that uh, Civic Works has a construction training center now in Remington. They can build up to nine uh, tiny homes simultaneously there. They have youth build funding in place to help make this happen. So the, the income side, be able to learn a new skill, get your GED, build a tiny house on there, um, and, and then have a job in your future in a construction area, which is a high demand field has been, especially now with the hurricanes in play. Yeah. The hurricane damage, you know, there's a lot of um, construction firms that have moved to those areas, and so there's a shortage now, right now, for construction jobs that's in this region. And um, that's another solution to this is get folks back to work locally, keep the money local by building tiny homes locally. So, so Greg, what about in situations where there is no backyard for the urban homeowner to be able to offer places like 
Kenton, Highland Town, Fells Point, et cetera, where, where that isn't even something that could be on the table. How exactly would it work in a situation like those areas? In those areas, well, there may actually be still some opportunities in the back if there are alleys that um, have access for a car. These tiny homes take the space of a car. If you can park a car in the backyard, you can put a tiny house there. But to your point, let's say that there is absolutely no room at all. There are uh, vacant lots, in many cases, gap-toothed lots that might be available um, to put a tiny home on. And and if you look, once you start looking from a tiny house mindset, it's very funny. You start to realize that there's always little pieces of plots of land that look like unbuildable in other, other circumstances that are actually available to, to, to squeeze a tiny house in. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. Um, there's, there's all kinds of places, and especially parking lots. Parking lots? Parking lots. So um, there's actually a movement called deep paving, and where you basically go in and you say, you know, why are we devoting so much time and money to storing cars in our city when we should be actually taking care of people instead? Hmm. And so a parking lot is a perfect place to start a tiny home community. You know, and it's fascinating because as we're having conversations about growth and population and, and the need to have growth and population, I mean, you, you look at places like Nashville. Right. Nashville is gaining upwards of 10,000 people per week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how fast yeah. that city is growing. Nashville, how, how quickly they're growing. Austin, how quickly mm-hmm. they're growing. Uh, Atlanta, how quickly they're growing, right? Yeah. Where they have to think about what are some alternative housing options uh, simply because they are just right. really running out of space. If Baltimore, if we're going to have that conversation about Baltimore, about, mm-hmm. you know, increased population, ways to be able to recruit people in and where are they going to live, knowing that how how they want to live becomes a, a core part of that of that element. That's so true. Can you imagine a big sign on Baltimore say open for tiny home business yeah. on here and um, and we have a place for you and we have an extraordinarily affordable place for you. Where you want to live on that. So that would put Baltimore on the map as a as a forefront city, a forerunner on that. And I think it would attract a lot of folks, you know, as we talked about, the folks that are downsizing, who don't want to buy a big house, um, who do want to live near where they work, um, who do want to spend uh, less time working, perhaps, and more time volunteering because they don't have to worry about their mortgage as much. I mean, there's so many things that can be done with this. And um, it just matter. It's a matter right now of of looking at our regulations and our zoning and our codes, and we we do have a new code in place. It's uh, in Maryland now. The IRC. It's called International Residential Code, which actually has a tiny house um, amendment to it, which enables tiny homes to be constructed more easily, with less code infringement issues. So there's the the, the pieces are in place, and and now is the will. That's. So going back to those neighborhoods you just mentioned, like Canton and so on, very possible. And can you imagine if we started substituting all this, this wasted parking uh, with people instead? That's right. It would be amazing, absolutely incredible. Um, and we, hopefully we'll have a problem where uh, we're so dense a city that we're having trouble finding places for folks. That's right. <laughs> Well, you're listening to Future City. I'm Wes Moore, and I've been talking with tiny home consultant Greg Cantori about the future of housing here in Baltimore. Greg, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. So this was a fantastic show, but as we close out, I have a caveat and also a few closing thoughts. First, the caveat. Uh, In hearing the show, you might have heard a few tiny voices in the background. Uh, They were 
my kids, my six-year-old daughter Mia and my four-year-old son James. Uh, and in fact, later on in the show, you might be hearing a uh, uh, their debut radio performance that'll take place later on. Um, but it's actually pretty ironic that uh, on a day where my little people were here, um, that we're also having a conversation about tiny homes. And the interesting thing is on this show, we deal with some very serious topics. So, uh, And so some people might say, well, are tiny houses uh, just whimsical and cute? And do they really fit into the conversation about future cities? You know, what do they have to do with future cities? The answer is everything because it's about community. And where we live is everything. Our population is growing, but the size of our country is not. So how we think about the places and spaces that we call home have to be a part of this conversation. And there are a few realities that we have to understand. The reality is that there's historic growth in our stock market. We're seeing numbers that we have never seen before when it comes to the markets. But there's also other realities and other records being broken. We're watching trends where corporate profitability continues to rise. And some of the other trends that we're seeing is the amount of homeless people and the fastest growing homeless population is the working poor. People who are working and still can't afford to live in current housing conditions. So the implications of tiny houses are not just about HDTV and television ratings and not just fodder for social media or unique places to have wine parties. No. These are forced conversations and important conversations about how innovation, change in mindset, and reevaluating our wants versus our needs will help create an inclusive future city. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My handle is at IamWestmore. And if you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. I'm Mia Moore. Nice job! You can hear it, right? You can hear it? Nice job! Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.